You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What is up, y'all? What's up, Kyle? What's up, Jen? Hey. Do you still say y'all in Colorado? I do sometimes. It just kind of comes out. But is there a Colorado version of the y'all? Uh, no. Oh. Not like used guys? Yeah, you could say, you, not used guys. You could say you guys. Oh, okay. What do you guys call Coke in Colorado? No, water. 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 We don't soft drink drinks. that stuff. What do you call soft drinks? We, we just no, drink water what do you here. call so- Water from the mountain. What do you guys call soft drinks? Pop. Soda. No. Coke. Okay. You use right. Coke as a general term for, for all... No. Uh, what, what do we call it? I guess we'd call it pop, pop, soda. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I think I call it pop primarily because my family's from the Midwest, like mm-hmm. Kansas, Nebraska. That's just kind of what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. When when people call it pop, it it, it pesters me. Like it, it like I'm like <laughs> ugh. No one want pop. It feels so weird to me when they say it. Uh, sorry if you're a pop if you're if you're somebody who's a pop drinker out there then. God bless you, but I just, it sounds like something out of a movie uh, from the 50s or something. Well, okay, that's not what we're talking about today. But I do have something for you to find out about, which is the three of us get to hang out a lot this year. And one of the places that we're going to be is at the Gospel Coalition in September, their national annual conference. Uh, We'll be doing a couple of special events at the conference. We'd love for you to come and join us. Uh, We're doing a live recording of Knowing Faith there. We're doing a panel. It's going to be a lot of fun. So our friends over at TGC have created a discount code for $20 off registration that expires on February 16th. The code is KNOWINGFAITH. You can register over at the Gospel coalition.org slash TGC 23. Use the code knowing faith. They're going to give you $20 off registration. We'd love to see you out there at that conference. Should be fun. Well, this season, we're going a little bit back and forth. We're doing some kind of reflective episodes over the values and the vision and the culture and the history of knowing faith, but we're also going to be exploring the doctrine of salvation. Uh, JT, are you saved? I hope so. I guess we're going to find out in this season. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Uh, I know that Jen's walking with the Lord. Sometimes I got my doubts about you, but uh, we're going to be exploring the dot. We're not going to be exploring our personal salvations. Those we have, uh, we, we've just have trusted to the Lord. We're going to be exploring the doctrine of salvation. And today we're going to begin with uh, the one that's not contentious or divisive at all. We're going to begin with uh, election or predestination. So we just figured... <laughs> We got to start where the Bible starts, uh, and uh, the Bible starts here. So we're going to explore it together. So, what is election? Let's just start there, JT. You know, I think just to um, let's jump into election in just a second. But something I found when I'm teaching on the doctrine of salvation is we continually have to go back to the doctrine of sin uh, because mm-hmm. you, you can't really answer the question "What has God done in order to make things right?" before you explore the question "What went wrong." And how you answer that question, uh, what went wrong, who we are, what our problem is, we can't really understand how the solution or how God would save us. And so it's important for, I believe that the Bible teaches that uh, all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by that, we mean we're spiritually dead and will all one day experience physical death. We're separated from God and are in need of deliverance. So our misery of sin needs to go hand in hand with, with the hope and the grace and mercy that God offers us in salvation. And so a lot of that has to do with what is a human? Like, what is the state that a human is in when they are met with the grace and mercy of God? And the doctrine 
that I would appeal to. There was a controversy in the fourth century between a bishop in North Africa named Augustine and a, a pastor, a bishop in in uh, what is now the United Kingdom or or Britain. Uh, named Pelagius. And this is one of the large debates that happens in the fourth century. It's called the Augustinian and Pelagian controversies, where they're arguing back and forth about the state and the nature of humanity. They kind of come to a conclusion at the Council of Orange, uh, which really kind of doesn't totally side with Augustine, but largely does, where it says, humans are depraved. Uh, We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And and it's talking about the capacity for a human to choose God. And and, uh, the council does say that... And and largely the Christian tradition would say that there is human volition. There is human responsibility in responding to God. It's not that we're somehow robots and incapacitated to respond. That's not true. But it's that God uses his grace and mercy to awaken our affections to choose him. That would be kind of broadly accepted in the Protestant uh, tradition, whether we're talking about Wesleyanism, Arminianism, or Calvinism. There's different flavors of all of those things. But before we get into election, we have to be able to say, at least in in some sense, the human capacity for life by ourselves is gone. We do not have that. We are in need of God confronting us with his mercy, his electing mercy, we'll say in this episode, to bring us back to him. We we aren't totally free in terms of some kind of sense where we could just say, I could either choose God or not choose God, and I, I have the capacity to do both. We are separated from him and are in need of him coming to us. Yeah, this is actually a perfect segue into this quote that I have from Spurgeon that I uh, that I love so much. Uh, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that doctrine. I love that because it does Spurgeon has a very strong sense of the impact of sin on his own life. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful quote and it's humorous as well, but it also has the benefit of being true, which is that because of the impact of sin, we are both unable and unwilling to choose God. We've covered this at length in previous episodes on the doctrine of sin. So you can go find those in the archives, but when we think about the doctrine of election, I do not think, and JT, you're wise to rewind it before we get into the doctrine of election, because I, I do think that once you understand the impact of sin, you, you're then forced to grapple with the reality of, man, if God does not sovereignly intervene in salvation, which is certainly what election and predestination are getting at, then there is no hope for salvation. Yeah, and we live in a day where there's kind of a a, a radical conception of self-expression, self-identity, self-actualization, kind of uh, libertarianism, kind of I I have freedom to be, to choose, and do whatever I want. And we can talk about that in the political realm in some different ways. The question is, is that true in a salvific and in a theological way? One of the passages that I would point us to that I think I don't know what Spurgeon was preaching or what he was quoting there, but Ephesians chapter one is a really helpful passage here to think about God's electing mercy to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. So Ephesians chapter one, verse four says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we'd be holy and blameless before him. And what the Reformation does is, is uh, and I love, I was reading Bavink on this yesterday. I'm going to use a big term and I'm going to define it. Don't worry, Jen. Is it talk about what's <laughs> called the pactum salutis 
or the pact to save. And what they're talking about there, these Reformed theologians, is God, before the foundation of the world, made a pact as Father, Son, and Spirit to interact with a fallen world as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father being the one who sends, the Son being the one who is sent, and the Spirit being the one who will apply salvation after the Son accomplishes it. And that's exactly what you then see in Ephesians chapter 1 through 4. You see the father choosing a people, choosing a son to send to his people, to accomplish salvation for them, to pour out his blood for them, and then eventually sending a spirit to apply salvation as a seal and as a down, as a down payment. So not only does the doctrine of election have to do with our sinfulness, it also has to do with the very nature and character of God, the fact that God covenanted with the three persons of the Trinity before the foundations of the world to be the electing God for ruined sinners. Yes. Amen. Well, I would also say that it's helpful to take up the doctrine of salvation, not just after considering the doctrine of sin, and I know JT would, JT and Kyle would agree with this, um, but to understand the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation in light of God as our origin— and us created as image bearers. So, mm-hmm. you know, going all the way back to starting with the doctrine of God and then moving to the doctrine of man. Uh, because as we get into a conversation about God electing, and again, in, in the ecosystem that we're in right now with, with individualism being just, you know, in Western culture, that's, that's what everybody's about. It's I get to make my own choices. And then particularly in the United States, uh, you know, the the American dream is is sort of based on the idea that you're self-determining and you're a self-made person. And um, so the Bible pushes back on those ideas. It, it says that you exist because God decided you would exist. And so I think before we can talk about you're, you're saved because God set his electing uh, love and mercy on you, we need to remember that the reason that you're breathing in and out at all right now is because he's your origin. And yeah. that um, and the, the one who is an author of something has the right to determine its purpose and to determine its worth. And so yeah. that's a hard word. And to determine its yeah, end. Yeah, and to determine its end, outcome. yeah. And so in the same way that like, I'm an author of a book. I get to decide, you know, how that book is going to be um, put out into the world. I get to under, I get to decide what it's going to emphasize and what it's not going to emphasize. And so, just in a very real sense, just in a very literal sense, thinking about what it means to be an author, and then remembering mm. that God is the author uh, of all things. He's the author of, of of humanity. He's the author of the idea of humanity and and the purpose of humanity. And so, by the time you get to the doctrine of sin, then you understand the doctrine of sin uh, for what it for what it really is. It's that image bearers just decided, no, we're going to punt on that. We're going to do our own mm-hmm. thing. And they said to the to the potter, uh, the pot gets to say mm-hmm. what the pot's purpose is going to be. Yeah. So then when you get to the doctrine of salvation, it becomes framed more clearly in terms of like, wow, he did not have to do that. Like, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, and so uh, so then you can understand it for the the miracle that it is. So uh, well, that's exactly right, Jen. One of the things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote here from Bavink because why wouldn't we? Why uh, he, says, <laughs> he, he says this, because maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, I don't understand the practicality of this, like uh, for, for my life. Uh, he says this, first, dogmatics, which means systematic theology, as well as for the practice of the Christian life. The doctrine of the covenant is of greatest importance. And here's what he means by that. He's not 
yet talking about the Abrahamic or the Noahic or the Davidic covenant. He's talking about the covenant of who God is, because then he says right after this, he says, the pact of salvation makes known to us the relationships and life of the three persons in the divine being as a covenantal life, a life of consummate self-consciousness and freedom. It is the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, who together conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation. So what Jen was just saying right there is our salvation is as secure as who God is. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And if God is Father, Son, and Spirit, has acted as Father, Son, and Spirit, and mm -hmm. has covenanted together to always be and act as Father, Son, and Spirit, and he has chosen you and him, then your salvation is as secure as the character of God. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you think about election from a standpoint of uh, how sure and steady is our salvation, the doctrine of election breathes a tremendous amount of confidence uh, in the beginning and end of our salvation because it's not rooted in our faithfulness to God as Savior, but in his, in his faithfulness to his own character, uh, which is a tremendous blessing for the Christian, which also, again, like we said before, has the benefit, the added benefit of being true. Mm -hmm. So when we think about election, we've been, we've been throwing these words around Election and predestination uh, are words that sit underneath a larger banner in kind of when we're thinking through Christian doctrine. The larger banner is the question of providence, which is God's work in the world or God's will at work in the world or all of God's acts in the world. So providence covers a number of things. It's brought, It's within the scope of providence to ask, like, did I just pick up the pen or did God cause me to pick up the pen? Or did God work through secondary causes for me to pick up the pen? Providence covers a large range of things. We're not really dealing with the question of providence today. We're focused specifically on the doctrine of salvation uh, in light of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man. Uh, so, in light of that, we're talking about election and predestination, which are the operative words that the Bible is going to use when thinking about how God secures the salvation of his people, and namely, when God secures the salvation of his people uh, or sets his salvation upon his people, you might say, to be more precise. And so for that reason, JT has already gone to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, but I do think it's important that we kind of, uh, this is a little maybe it's not, totally accurate to say, but we kind of timestamp this activity that we're talking about. When we're talking about election or predestination, we are talking about something as it pertains to salvation that happens before the beginning of the world, mm -hmm. before the very foundation well, that's what it says in Ephesians of the 1. world. Right. He, he's chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this precludes, immediately precludes the uh, the idea that God is kind of watching things unfold and making game time decisions in the scope of our real experience of time, space, history, and the present. So God isn't like looking up there with the with the system and being like, okay, if he goes left or right, that'll change the outcome. So no, 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 no. He is going to go left or right because of the path that I've laid out for him. He is the vessel and I am the potter. And I think that that's a really important thing 
for us to understand because there's a lot of different ways of dealing with these words that will try to outflank God's timelessness and his will. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that are going to try to, like, I, I routinely hear about election and predestination. Oh, election and predestination, those are Calvinistic things. No, they're not. Whether you want to go, go under the Calvinistic banner or not, we don't really have any interest, the three of us, defending what Calvin said or didn't say. We're not Calvin scholars, nor are we... Recruiting. Or, that's Or recruiting. The, the important thing is that the words election and predestination are biblical words <laughs> that we have to wrestle with. And you cannot get around dealing with what the Bible says about salvation without a meaningful and cogent articulation of what they are. So election is God's sovereign activity in saving his people before the foundation of the world. Now, there are many faithful ways to articulate that that are kind of in the camp. The three of us typically are going to articulate them in a very similar way that says that this sovereign activity, the sovereign work of salvation happened with no reference to future acts of those whom God would save, meaning it was done apart from looking downfield and saying, well, Jen Wilkin is going to choose me, so I elect Jen Wilkin. It wasn't done with his sovereign activity in electing or predestinating his people for salvation wasn't done with reference to what they would do down the way. He did it out of unconditional love. It doesn't mean it's arbitrary. It just means that it's done from a real position of gift and not a position of knowledge that would then verify in his electing work. Is that a faithful articulation of where you are on this spectrum? It is for me, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think so. That is where I, I would be. But I do feel a sensitivity to the pastoral concerns that arise when you have this conversation. And mm -hmm. I think we should probably talk about that earlier rather than later in this discussion. I, I never enter into a contemplation of God's sovereignty or his electing sovereignty like, I'm never just thinking, yep, so God chose me, so too bad for those who he didn't, and, you know, I mean, and that kind of a thing. I can very say with a great deal of honesty, I, d I don't understand all of it. Like, I don't understand the why. Um, I still have mm -hmm. a big part of me that is like, I would change this. I would do this differently if I were the, the creator. And that I recognize is a product of my own limitations that I feel that way, but I don't like any more than anybody else the idea that some are elect and some are not. I don't. And I don't expect that this side of heaven, I'm going to understand it. But that doesn't mean that I can look away from something that is in the scriptures that I, honestly, I feel like it's pretty clear. Like this all came into focus for me, not because someone was recruiting me to a particular position on this, but because I was studying the book of Romans. Like, the, I don't know how else to say that. And I know we talked about that some when we were mm -hmm. in the book of Romans. And so um, I do think it's really important when you start to think about the issue of election that you allow yourself to read what do the Arminians say and what do the Calvinists say and where do I fall 
And there was Mm -hmm. a time period in my life where I would have said, yep, it's that Calvinist articulation straight down the line. And now I would say, I understand why not everyone says it that way. And even though I would say it that way more than I would say it differently, I still understand the discomfort with and the uh, disagreement with some of the things that are articulated by the Calvinist position. And that's why we say we're not recruiting. Um, again, this is this is not a first order issue. Uh, Arminians yeah. are Christians. And so even though I would not say mm-hmm. that I identify with the Arminian position the way that I do with the Calvinist position, I also would not say if you don't adhere to a Calvinist view of this, you're just kind of dumb or you read the Bible wrong. I don't think that at all. No, Kyle does. <laughs> no, I do not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah. No, I do not. I, I mean, I, uh, I, I will say that I do feel like one of the temptations when people are new to this, uh, kind of uh, new to Reformed theology, yes. is that they can get really, really yeah. bent out of shape about like guarding a very specific view of election. And so, and I, I understand that I probably, we probably have listeners on here who have been really burnt by these conversations because somebody was mm-hmm. really, really over torqued about one totally. aspect of salvation. And if that's you, just know I understand that. I was probably uh, one of the, I definitely did that. Well, you guys don't get, I, I uh, spare you from, we get, you know, lots of emails that come into the Training the Church website asking theology questions or, uh, you know, wanting to be podcast sponsors, whatever, and I try to filter those. One of the questions that we've probably gotten five or six times is, we're, we're bringing on a new pastor. He's a Calvinist. Should I be afraid? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're Calvinists. Are you afraid? You know, I don't, I don't say it quite that way, but... But there's sometimes you probably should be. There are people who mm-hmm. over-torque this thing, and it's all they're going to talk about, and they're going to talk about it in unsensitive, non-pastoral, and I would say not even in New, in New Testament ways, but uh, maybe in, lo- in ways that they think this should play out logically. That is a concern. We want to be biblical in all that we say. While at the same time, there are ways to hold what I would call doctrines of grace with humility. We've had Jeff Metters on where he talks about yeah. um, humble Calvinism, and that's what we would want to try to embody here. Uh, he has, by the way, if you're thinking about these doctrines, of grace and you're wanting to hold them in in pastorally sensitive ways, I would encourage you to get that book, Jeff Metter's uh, Humble Calvinism. But at the same time, I, I agree with what you guys have said. I'm not so interested in holding up the doctrines of all that. Cal- There's so much that Calvin said that I disagree with, uh, whether it's the doctrine of the church and the relationship between the, the state and the church or other things. So we don't have to agree with Calvin on everything. We have to wrestle with what the biblical text yeah. says. And I think that's what you've helpfully said, Kyle. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. 
We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Yeah, and there and, and the Bible does talk about this, and it, it talks about it explicitly and implicitly. So, like when we think about the doctrine of election, oftentimes we're going to go to the New Testament because that's where we're going to find some of those words that are clicking with us: election, predestination, and that's great. There are many passages: Ephesians one, Romans eight, Romans nine, Second uh, Timothy one uh, eight through nine. There are many, many passages you can go to. Uh, John six has reference to this in Jesus's teaching. I feel I, I think the high priest priestly prayer is talking about election as well. There's just a lot of places you could go. Now, the Old Testament, though, when we're thinking through the doctrine of election, isn't always using the same words that we're familiar with, but they're certainly uh, telling the story of election in progress, in process. Mm -hmm. So like when you think about Abraham, for example, uh, or Noah, these are the righteous men, righteous families that God sets apart uh, for himself. You think about Israel and their place among the nations throughout the, the whole of the Old Testament. This is exactly the logic the Old Testament logic of election is what undergirds Paul's writings in Romans 8 through 11. So while you are maybe not getting the terminology uh, that you're going to find in the New Testament that maybe feels more familiar to you when exploring this part of the doctrine of salvation, conceptually, the doctrine of election, it's present throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And theologically, the work of election has happened before anything is happening, even creation itself. So just to retrace your steps, because I think when you're trying to do biblical theology, it's easy in this this specific doctrine to just proof text and be like, well, th this is what the New Testament, the New Testament says I desire that all should be saved. Well, this passage says that, uh, you know, uh, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Uh, and this passage says this, and it's fine. The New Testament is giving us a lot of very, uh, clearer explanations of biblical concepts, but election as a act has happened before the foundation of the world. The scripture is quite clear about that. And election in process is what's happening over the whole of the Old Testament and still today as we think about its unfolding activity in the history of the world. And honestly, the places that I had to grapple with at first were not in New Testament passages. It was in Old Testament passages I think the first place that it became um, apparent to me was I would date it. I would I would push it back earlier in the text now, but in the early days of reading through Genesis, is you get to Genesis chapter twelve, and you're like, well, shoot, Abraham was just minding his own business, a pagan mm -hmm, in a pagan mm -hmm. culture, and God says, get up and get out of there, and like that that's election. That's why, hey, and why, and why fucking, not his neighbor? That's right. Right. Uh, yeah. That's right. And then you just see that again and again. And then, I mean, and the other piece of this is like the people who God calls are absolute train wrecks. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I, I don't like Jacob. I do not like him. I don't even <laughs> like Isaac that much. 
Uh, Abraham has some really terrible moments, but generally I feel warmth toward him. I want I want Joseph to be the one through whom the line comes, and that's not how it plays out. Like it doesn't make sense when you look at the by human estimation. You know, Joseph gives us the clearest portrait of Christ in the book of Genesis, and he's not in the line of Judah, mm-hmm. obviously, because Judah's his brother, right? And so none of it makes sense when you look back and, and say, well, this is the person who should have been chosen. You know, this is the person who it should have come from. This is the person who had the good attitude or was the most obedient. And so it's, uh, I don't know that, first of all, it's not a New Testament concept, as, as Kyle was saying. And then secondly, it's just not an easy one. Like right. you don't you don't ever find the example where you're like, oh yeah, that it makes sense that that person was chosen. I remember one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, John Hannes, saying there is an order that hu- to election that humans can't see. To humans, it looks like schizophrenia, uh, but yeah. to God, it is it is ordered. And I think we can see that even in Gen— one of the things that, that Kyle and I used to teach, and maybe, Jen, you've taught this when you did Genesis. I, I, don't, I can't remember. But when we would teach this in the training program and the Institute Forge program, uh, when we teach Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, which I think it's important to read because this is the moment of Abraham's yeah. electing— and it says this, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's mm-hmm. okay. So first, that is a particular election. Like he didn't choose Abraham's neighbor. He didn't choose somebody living in Egypt. He didn't choose somebody living in, I mean, he, he's, he comes to Abram for no other reason other than God's electing mercy. And he says, I'm going to do this for you, Abram. Not not because I saw before the foundation of the world that you'd be a great investment. Not because, you know, he just says, you, Abram. But he then says this, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that uh, some of the pastoral concerns that we were talking about a minute ago is we will only emphasize the particularity of election and not the universality of it. Uh, and mm-hmm. what we see here in the very first passage, talk, or I guess you could say Noah was, was elect, but that I would say in terms of the particularity of election here, in terms of the doctrine of salvation, the point of election is that it never terminates it on itself. It goes to the nation. So right. one of the concerns we might have is, if I believe in the doctrine of election— I'm not sure I'll be an evangelist anymore. Or if I give mm-hmm. in to election, I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going to have the, or if you believe in election, you're not going to share your faith. But the point here is, is Abraham's election isn't just for himself. Mm-hmm. It's for the nations. God chose Abram to then take this gospel, is what Paul says in Galatians chapter three, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abram, Abram so that it might go to the nations. So if, you're, yeah. if your understanding of election terminates just upon you and not in you taking the gospel to the nations, then you don't have a biblical doctrine of, of election. That's, this is supposed to be for other people that the nations might be blessed through you. Spurgeon has, has a—I won't get the quote exactly right, but he preaches this, uh, not this passage, but he preaches on the doctrine of election— and he says, you know, if if we if if the elect had like a yellow stripe painted on their back, we would just go share the gospel with them because we know that they're the elect and they're saved. But since they don't have that and we don't know who the elect are, we share the gospel indiscriminately with everybody so that the elect might respond to the gospel in salvation. So yeah. election should never, ever, ever stop us from sharing the gospel indiscriminately with the nations. Yeah, but why doesn't he save everybody? Wow, what's the matter with him? Well, I mean that. I mean that is a that is a very. 
I think it's a very natural question to ask. It's like, what what are his limits of grace or mercy? Didn't you tell me his grace is infinite? You know, infinite. It's uh, inexhaustible. And I think that presumes that uh, mercy is something that we're entitled to or that we deserve or that love or grace is something that we're entitled to or deserve. The you know, I, I'll echo what many theologians and teachers and preachers and writers have said on the doctrine of election, which is that the real wonder of it all is not over the question of why won't God save everybody? The real wonder of it all is why has this holy, just, and righteous God saved anybody? There is, uh, it's not a problem or question of God's mercy or grace or kindness or love or generosity. When we look at our life in a microcosm, any one person who is the heir of Adam's sin is a spiritual terrorist, a rebel and a rejecter of God. That is our inheritance by nature. And yet God has not just been gracious to one, God has been gracious to countless. We often ask this question like, well, there's me and there's the people in my church, but what about everyone else? Forgetting that God tells Abraham his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And there is a multitude that we cannot see because they have come before, and a multitude that we cannot see because we do not, we are not where they are, and a multitude we cannot see that will come in the years that come after our death, and all of that. When we see the sum total of that, we will not be looking around at heaven wondering why was God so uh, sparse in the allocation of his electing grace. We will be blown away by the mercy and grace of God. And so I often feel that part of my own wrestling with that question was understanding that I had a fairly myopic view of God's scope of salvation uh, and a fairly small view of it when it came to the unfolding of it in human history and in the human future that I'll never know or see this side of heaven. I think that's a great answer. I think that's the right answer. But now I want to ask a follow-up question. Okay. You guys are both pastors. How do you speak to the person who has lost a loved one who is not a believer to the best of their knowledge? Like How, there's a person listening to this podcast who's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I hear you, but I don't want to be in eternity in the presence of God without this person who mm -hmm. I love, who was created in the image of God. Uh, then I think, well, one, I would say, you know, my hope would be that I would be able to tell them what I've told many others, which is that the good news of the Bible is that God is actually powerful enough to change human hearts, mm -hmm. that his will will not be thwarted by the will of any person or thing, and that uh, the God who saves is the God who triumphs over the stubbornness of human flesh and frailty. So because God is sovereign over salvation, you have the strongest foundation possible philosophically, theologically, and practically to pray to God that he would save your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, because you're not praying to a God who is powerless in the face of their will. You're praying to a God who is powerful over the stubbornness and hard-heartedness of their will. And that is a truth that is only true in its power 
and in its substance because God is sovereign over salvation. So you should pray with boldness and with confidence because you have no idea. And in your own life, you are acknowledging that God saved you even though you did not deserve it. And so if you know God has done that for you and others, you know he's able to do it for them as well. And I just implore you to pray for them with fervency and perseverance because in God's mysterious plan, he's chosen to drive home his purposes in the world, often through the prayers of his people. I would say exactly that. The only caveat I might give, like if I was, maybe it was a different situation, because I think Kyle's there talking about somebody who might still be living. Jen, it sounded like your question was specifically to somebody who's already passed away, Mm -hmm. uh, and you knew knew they weren't a Christian. The question behind, so often when we ask questions like that, we're not actually asking the question we're asking. Mm -hmm. We're asking a question behind the question. We're not Mm -hmm. actually asking a question of salvation. We're asking a question of theology proper. Is God trustworthy and is God mm-hmm. loving? Like, can I can I trust Him and can I trust He's merciful and loving? And I would just I would just throw them back upon the character of God. We didn't read that part, but Ephesians chapter one verse four says he, that He does this in love. Uh, that this God is not wicked. He is not acting unmercifully. He's acting lovingly. And I think the same thing's true when we talk about like the the age of accountability or what happened to the child that I miscarried mm-hmm. or what happened to the, to my infant that died uh, tragically. Is is we we can without beyond a shadow of a doubt throw people upon the merciful character of God and say he's loving and he's trustworthy. Yeah, I think this is one of the hardest topics mm-hmm. in the church. Yeah. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I have told to people who are in grief, because it's something that I will carry myself when I'm in a season of grief over losing someone who you don't know their eternal state. And honestly, it's kind of like even the people who we say we know a lot, there are very few people, I think, in our lifetimes who we will stand at their graveside and say, I know this person was a believer. And, um, I remind myself that it is my calling and my privilege to carry the weight of that person's conversion during their life. Like that's something that I'm called to do. I'm called to pray for them. As you've said, Kyle, I'm called to ask the Lord to do what only He can do. But when a person dies and I don't know their eternal state or I'm concerned that I do know it and it's not what I would have hoped or what I had prayed for, that I am not called to carry that burden for the rest of my life. I am allowed to lay that burden down as I trust the Lord's sovereignty in all things. Um, and again, it's like it's like all other hardship and difficulty that we face. Um, it does cause you to say, is God good? And those are important things that we have to process. But as with all difficulty or or tragedy or struggle, those answers take years. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's one thing yeah. to sit in a space of saying, I know that I know that I know that the Bible is giving me a, a testimony of a God who is good and trustworthy, and I don't know how He is in this circumstance, but I also know that I don't know that's everything. Right. And so yeah. I'm going to try to rest in that. And that, again, that's not meant to be a simplistic answer at all. But I also think that we can sometimes lose sight of the beauty of this doctrine because we become fixed on the difficulties of this doctrine. And yeah. so you need to give yourself permission to, to not just um, pull apart the parts that are difficult for you, but also to savor the parts that are beautiful. That's right. I want to just say one other thing here that is, it's moving from a little bit of a pastoral note to kind of moving back to a theological note, but I think it's just a helpful thing to think about when this this question arises. Mm -hmm. The question that is being asked broadly is, why didn't God save? If God is sovereign, if he elects, if he's Mm -hmm. providential, sovereign, why didn't he? And let's just, the other side of that coin is, uh, 
why couldn't God save? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like if, if mm-hmm. you're if you're walking through a season of grief, you've lost a loved one. What we're saying is is the human will is more powerful than the divine will in this other other scenario. Perhaps in a I don't want to say Arminian to oversimplify this, but if we all lose loved ones, some of whom aren't going to be saved, mm-hmm. and we're confronted with one of these two questions: why didn't or why he, why couldn't he? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You're either stuck mm-hmm. with a God if you oversimplify these things and get stuck in a corner of a God that you might think is malicious, malevolent, unloving, or a God who's not powerful, yeah. a God who, mm-hmm. who could not overcome a human will, who could not, who could not save a sinner, mm-hmm. the sinner who was more powerful than God. And that is equally pastoral and scary to be able to answer that question also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. And, you know, and we've talked and it's wise that we have, and I appreciate both of you guys for bringing us there about just some of the, the, the this is one of those that's a, it's true. And there are some truths that are uh, very easy to receive. And there are some that are a little bit more prickly to receive. And this can be one that has some prickly dimensions to it. But like you were just saying a moment ago, Jen, there's also a real wonder and loveliness to this. And so I think a good place to to kind of land here is why is the doctrine of election good news? What's one reason? Not all the reasons, but what's one reason why the doctrine of election is good news? Well, I would say ever since Adam and Eve, we suck. Like, humans are <laughs> looking for ways. I was suck. not expecting to, I was not expecting you to say that. And even, even on this, on the other side of salvation, I persist in sucking. Like, I find new ways to suck when I stop sucking in old ways, you know? And and so the doctrine of, of salvation, the doctrine of election is good news because it means that nothing that I have done, nothing that I'm currently doing, and nothing that I will do can pluck me from his hand. And mm. I need to know that. And I think that the church as a whole needs to know that because that's what gives you courage, the courage that you need to live the Christian life in an oppositional space and to know that no matter what else goes wrong, things that I can't control, the Lord has me. Mm-hmm. That's good. I love that. That, that you, you quoted, you, you referred to exactly what I was going to say, which is that you can, with the doctrine of election, you can faithfully sing that, that part of in Christ alone, that you know, no power of hell, no scheme of man mm-hmm. can ever pluck me from his hand. Mm-hmm. till he returns or calls me home here in the love of Christ I stand and the reason for that is because God places us there he makes us recipients of something that we could never gain and because it's something we could never gain when he gives it to us it's something that we can never lose mm-hmm. and that is a, is an assurance of salvation that is an incredible gift to feeble and frail uh, followers of Jesus Christ, of whom I am the chief. So that is my good reason. I can't say it better than you guys said it. We are in Christ and always will be, never removed. And there's no better news than that. I want to um, uh, just acknowledge that we've covered a lot of terrain here on a doctrine that we could spend a whole season on. And so you heard a couple of just references to resource. JT mentioned humble Calvinism. I do want to spotlight R.C. Sproul's classic Chosen by God yep. as a really wonderful resource here. And balanced. Um, it's a balanced one. 
It is. It is. And so if you're looking for maybe just some next steps on this, uh, a good easy one would be you could check in the archives to find our episode with Jeff Metters on humble Calvinism. When that came out, there was a lot of people who responded saying it was one of the more helpful resources they had engaged with on the topic. So go check that out. You can follow through on that by getting his book if you're interested, or you can check out Sproul's classic Chosen by God, which was a huge book for me in helping to come to a, a really... I think, reasonable understanding of this. And there is nothing ever that we want to recommend beyond or more important than just a close attention to God's Word. So some of the passages that we would draw your attention to that we did in this episode, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, we would draw your attention to Romans 8 through 11. We would draw your attention to Ephesians 1. Those would be wonderful places you could go to to really just kind of flesh this out in Scripture and to grapple with some of the most beautiful and also some of the most bold texts that we have on the topic. So thank you for jumping in. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. It does help the show. And if you drop a question in there, we can check it out for future Q&A episodes. Go over to trainthechurch.com slash support if you want to find some behind-the-scenes stuff that you might be really interested in. Check out our sister shows. I want to spotlight Starting Place with the Elizabeth Woodson. Um, And this season, they are covering kind of the first part of the gospel. So they're going to be covering creation, the fall, covenant with Abraham, Exodus and the Mosaic covenant, the kings and the Davidic covenant. And I'm telling you, this is going to be such a helpful resource. If you've had a hard time trying to put the pieces of the biblical story together with the gospel as the good news of Christ Jesus— you should really go check this out. It would be tremendously helpful for seasoned believers and remarkably helpful if you're a new believer on your journey with Jesus or if you're working with people who are new to their journey with Jesus as well. Go check out Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson. And our next episode together, we're going to be talking about our personal heroes of the faith, uh, which will be a lot of fun. And uh, we hope that you'll join us for that. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace. Peace.